0: You are now listening to British
1: Brothers,
0: the True Cry podcast. Here we go, I think we're recording now, I believe. Oh, was that your phone? I'm afraid
1: that the life of an academic, you'll hear sort of lots of email pings this afternoon as I'm being contacted by numerous students. So is that going to be a problem? Do you want me to turn into-
0: Not at all. Not at all, Bob. Not at all. So for people listening, I've got Bob Green with me here. Now, you've got a couple of letters after your name, Bob.
1: I do, actually, yes, from, from the lad, I suppose, who um, failed his 11-plus all the ago. And so sort of finally, the penny dropped, Later on in life. So yes, I, I got the OBE in, in 2008, services to forensic science. Uh, the only thing I look back on now, I suppose, in, with sadness is that my father wasn't alive to, to see it because, of course, it would have meant more to dad than perhaps it does to me nowadays. Uh, and in fact, I've actually just given the medal away to my, my son. Uh, so it, it actually means very little after the initial year of the of actually getting the, the OBE. Uh, then I, I went on. Uh, I, I thought, I suppose, you know, I would better. Uh, I mean, come from from the northeast, from the north, as you can, you can tell. Back in 1986, I sort of thought, you know, you'd you better shape, start shaping up. Um, and so each year, I actually went back to uh, to do some further study to the point where I amassed a, a, you know, some qualifications. Realised that actually, you know, what I, I could do it after all those years, being told that you, you sort of thought you couldn't do it. Um, so yeah, I got the OB. Then I, prior to that, I got the, I uh, did an MA, um, I did a, a, an MSc and uh, a couple of professional uh, postgraduate diplomas along the way. Then when I went to the home office, um, they said, Oh, would you like to be um, considered for a placement at St Andrews? So I thought, well, actually, you know what? They uh, paid me uh, to do it. So yes, I went to St Andrews for, uh, for a few years.
0: So what's the JP? I did research it. Justice of the Peace, is that right?
1: It is. I've, I've actually latterly stood down a little bit, stood a step back from that, um, essentially because you know I'm, I'm, I'm simply too busy at work nowadays, um, and I got the sense got the sense that there was more and more and more expected of us, which I, I just sort of couldn't keep keep pace with.
0: Okay. So let's go back to the OBE for a second because you're the first guest on the show that's got a title after their name, if you like. Do you call it a title at the end? What's it, what's it called? You
1: know, I, I don't know what they call it. I've never really thought about it, apart from the, the, you know, that initial thought of, oh, actually, Dad would have really been quite pleased with this, but uh, sadly he died by then.
0: Yeah, so you got that. So let's say it was on the Queen's uh, birthday honours list of 2008. It was. How does that come about? It's not like the Queen rings you and says, Bob, do you want an OBE?
1: Well, I, I actually, the, the truth of the matter is that I, I actually learned back in probably about 19, sorry, back in, in 2007 when my wife, I was actually over in the US hosting a, a conference, but a conference with a little bit of a difference because this conference they'd, they'd actually run out of money. Um, so I was actually being the, com, you know, the conference chairman and actually operating the slides as well. Uh, and in those days we used to have the uh, it's technology now, but we yeah, have the Blackberry. Anyway, the BlackBerry pinged while I'm in the US. and uh, My wife said, oh, you've you had a letter from the Prime Minister. Uh, it was uh, Gordon Brown at the time. And so I'm trying to fiddle with the slides. and
0: So this is while you're on stage you received the specimen?
1: Well, well, it was actually while I was changing over the slides for, for the oh, people. Oh, okay. And I was okay. Like, compare, with the, the, the chair, on the side, the, side kind and, of and thing. Doing, because we'd run out of money, we tried to do it on, on a shoestring, really. Okay. I was a jack of all the trades. So... Um, like I say, I, I text back to say, um, "Well, have you opened it?" So next text, uh, "No." Well, open it, uh, uh, and so this this thing went on. Uh, and she said, "Oh, you've you got this award, um, and uh, you know we've got to tell them literally within a week um, whether you'll accept or not." Well, I was going to be in the US for uh, you know for a few few weeks, so I wasn't actually physically going to get back. So my wife actually rang back, and I, I contacted them when I got back home. It's then a sort of process. Um, it goes to the cabinet office. Um, then you sort of put into one or two cohorts, either the the birthday honours list or the the New Year's honours list. And these two cohorts, they try to uh, to manage them so that they, they have two what's the word they call them two ceremonies each each year. And they try to fit you into one of those, whether you've got the the New Year's or the the birthday honours. Try to fit you into either of those.
0: What's the ceremony like?
1: Oh, it was it was very nice. Um, like, like I say, the, the only um, drawback was that uh, I wish Dad had been there, but uh, it was very nice. And, and actually, the, the video that you, you have taken of the the whole thing video that's all old, old hat now is it? it's a CD. And I remember, of course, being a Yorkshireman balking at the fact that to, uh, this CD was, I think, about two hundred pounds. <laughs> uh, it, it was it was very naturally. Very cool. yeah. it was very nicely done. Um, and uh, they follow your your sort of guests, so you have to give them an. an indication of who your guests are, uh, and then they sort of follow them around. So it's pieced together with, uh, you know, and it all sort of looks about as if it's about you, when, of course, it it isn't. You know, it's lots of people going through at the same time. Do
0: you actually get presented with the physical award by the Queen, then? Do you get to meet the Queen, I assume?
1: Yes, yes. In fact, if I can just move away from the screen a bit, here's a picture. I don't know if you can see it there.
0: Oh, yeah, cool. Nice. Uh,
1: A picture. Uh, And, of course, you're given strict instructions of what to do and what not to do.
0: What sort of guidelines do they say? What's bad etiquette with the Queen?
1: You um, you go in, um, uh, you, you sort of called from the uh, uh, from the, the corner, effectively as you walk through the, the front doors of Buckingham Palace. Uh, and I suppose you know, looking back on it, who'd have thought that you know the, the young lad from Yorkshire would have been walking through the, the gates of Buckingham Palace? So you go up the stairs, guests go to one side, you go up the main stairs, and then you sort of met in, in a room, and it's all very well. Organised, as you'd imagine, but you, you actually see your you don't see your guests at all, really, uh, until the ceremony is over. You're taken off into a room. They tended to put the the knighthoods first, so I think they go off into a separate room. Then, quite early on, I think is are the OBEs, uh, and then they actually go through them by by a sort of rank order, I suppose. So, yeah, I caught a glimpse of my wife as I sort of came through the uh, through the door of the into this what's the, what effectively is the ballroom. Looked across, could see my my young son fast asleep. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, um, a nice end, I suppose, to um, you know, to a, a good career, I suppose.
0: I'll just ask one last question: What is the bow etiquette? Because there's debates online about how deep do you bow? Do you do a full bow? Do you curtsy? You know, what do you do? Do you get prepped on that? No, well,
1: they, they just sort of say, you know, it, it's just a nod. They, I remember they would okay. say, you know, just, just one, one simple nod will be fine. Uh, you address the Queen um, as. Her Majesty to start with, and then thereafter, you know, uh, mom. Oh sorry, Mam. I remember them saying Mm rather than Mom, don't don't say Mm. <laughs> like so
0: it. you see it in the James Bond films as Mom, don't you? I suppose. Yeah, no, mom. it
1: is you you, put, you majesty to start with, then then Mam thereafter.
0: Okay. Yeah. So let's rewind a little bit. You mentioned that you failed your eleven plus, which is uh, before my time, that I think the eleven plus, sorry to to mention. <laughs> what is it what's the equivalent now is it GCSEs?
1: You no know, it's actually taking it one, one stage back actually it was the the test that got you into grammar schools we still had the the remnants of grammar right. school, um and you know it, it meant that you're going to you were going to go to a comprehensive school uh, which i don't think i really really very well excelled at and, and so for me all of this i suppose this learning came later on in life
0: so, what were your thoughts then after finishing that test? Did you have plans on what you wanted to do, or was it kind of I might have to get a job now?
1: Well, in, in in those days, I mean, if if you didn't get into a grammar school, that was be the, really the kiss of death, because you you know you were you were probably going to have a you know a blue collar job. You know, it was uh, you you were screened out of the, the you know the grammar school stream. Or I actually went to comprehensive school, um, and I suppose reflectively now did okay-ish there, and then went out to, to work, into the world of work.
0: What was your first job?
1: My first job was uh, as an engineer. I was a um, production engineer in the uh, in the early days from around about 78, I think, um, in Sheffield until effectively the steel industry was sort of drawing to a close then, um, and so the jobs were drying me up. But I enjoyed it. I you know, did my day-release stuff um, and enjoyed the engineering. Uh, we used to make things for uh, components for Rolls Royce, so that's quite prestigious to have to be making those types of things. Um, but of course, you know the, the engineering world came to a standstill, and so I went to uh, to work in uh, in policing. Um, I got a job in uh, at the police station. Interestingly, you were saying earlier on about your Huddersfield route, um, and interestingly, at the police station where Peter Sutcliffe, the, uh, the, the then called Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, was actually arrested, and oh, wow. actually those two individuals who arrested Peter Sutcliffe, I, I knew very well indeed, Sergeant Bobbering uh, and his colleague uh, Robert Hydes. So that's when I worked, and then went to, to work, um, I suppose got promoted, we had our first child, uh, needed some more money, went to work in the city centre, where there was, I suppose, more money.
0: In Sheffield.
1: In Sheffield, in Sheffield yeah. city centre, yes, and you know, three shifts. And I remember a guy. I got then interested in forensic science work, and so I had a friend who was a crime scene examiner in Sheffield in those days. And I got chatting to him one night on, on nights, and he said, "Well, he said if you're interested in this stuff, he said why don't you uh, why don't you apply to various forces?" So anyway, when I used to come on nights, we were on opposite shifts. Um, there used to be a magazine where all the sort of police staff used to work. You, take the, the magazine effectively just for the jobs page. Uh, and Alan, this, this guy who was was the crime scene examiner, had copied the, uh, the page of this uh, magazine. And it was, I remember, it was one for, for Greater Manchester. And I sort of thought, oh, I don't know, Greater Manchester. No, I'll, I think I'll stay in Sheffield. So anyway, when I met Alan again, um, he said to me, he said, look, how did you get on with that, that job in Manchester? said well I wasn't successful. So I, I really had to tell him a lie, which we disappointed me really you know is I, this guy gone to all the efforts to actually get this help, job application for this job advert for me so anyway when the next uh, when he did it again I thought I can't lie to him again he bought me one for, for Kent down in Kent Consagoray down in Midstone. Yeah. so I thought well I, I can't lie to him again so this is now about <laughs> 1985 when all of this is happening so you know when Nelson still had his eye uh, in those days so a, a long time ago and so, I go for the uh, I went for the job. Uh, I was shortlisted. I recall, ringing Kemp Police up to say, "Look, you know, my application may be a little bit late. Will you still still so consider me?" And they told me that they'd had eighteen hundred applicants wow. uh, for, I think, ten jobs. So, you know, I said, "That's the end of it." Odds
0: so, stacked against that. you there. And,
1: and we we just carried on as normal. Then ultimately, it was a long story, but I came for the interview. Was home two weeks, got the job, uh, and then thought, mm, actually, what do I do now? So this is by, by this time, it's 1986.
0: How old are you at this point?
1: I'm going to say that I'm about um, late 20s, early 30s, something like that. Okay. But the thought of coming to, uh, to Kent had never really crossed my mind, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Yorkshire, lab Kent, yeah. That, too, really?
0: Yeah, I get you.
1: So anyway, um, I, like I say, I got this, this job, I tried then desperately to find reasons to back out of it, trying to get reasons to actually not to come uh, when I actually got the job, but then thinking it might be the start of something great. And, and in it, it, truth, it, it was. It was it, it, getting out of that, you know, your natural environment really sort of helped me to, to progress. Like I say, when I got to Kent, um, I redid lots of qualifications and then really got that, that sort of study book again later on in life.
0: How did you adapt to that because it seems like a bit of a jump going from potentially not getting into a comprehensive school to going into engineering and then the police side and then going into forensics it's quite a bizarre journey if you get me so how did you find adapting not only to life in Kent but to the job uh,
1: well I've I've always said and still say to my students nowadays that if you're interested in something you can do anything you want uh, you know providing that, that level of interest is there and I was Increasingly interested in forensic science and in, in, in policing in general, but primarily in, in forensic science and actually how it had been used to, uh, um, you know, to, to convict some people. In fact, I remember vividly prior to me coming to, to Kent, one of the, the very latest cases that not I worked on, but was around when I was working with South Yorkshire Police, and that was the case of Arthur Hutchinson, and he'd murdered a, a dreadful murder in 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 Dor- in near Sheffield. The outskirts of Sheffield, um, and you know, listening to the, the the detectives sort of talking about how you know this guy had bitten into some cheese, uh, and how they were hoping to, you know, to to get some evidence from that piece of cheese uh, to actually link the offender back, to link Hutchinson back to the offence, really spawned by my interest.
0: Do you remember the first major case you worked on? So it doesn't have to be a murder case, but when you went down to Kent, what was the first major case you were asked to be? a part of a
1: yeah, part of okay it, it was um i do actually it was uh on, on a saturday um i was working on my own and it was a uh a guy who'd been effectively kicked to death in, in an alleyway it might say kicked to death he'd been very ser- seriously assaulted kicked and uh, he'd actually gone to ha- gone to the hospital overnight he'd walked you know, he'd had a beating he walked into the into the ambulance and during the night he'd actually taken a turn for the worse um, so he'd actually died in hospital. And, of course, the, the scene itself hadn't been very well preserved because you know, it was an assault and actually not a murder at that time. Had, it, you know, had he died at the scene, probably people would have cordoned the scene off a little bit more uh, uh, more effectively than we did. And so I remember working, working on, on that case um, and very, very sad. Um, and looking back at it and reflecting back, I mean, this, that guy essentially had been attacked because he was gay. He'd been kicked to death because he was gay. Now, know, well, that's going back to 1986, 87. You know, and thank God, you know, attitudes are, have changed, are starting to change, uh, because it, it was dreadfully sad.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine being in such a junior level of the role. So within you know the first couple of years and. It must have always been in the back of your mind thinking I could work on some pretty major cases here what what do you think the most major case was the most well known
1: um i worked on the the deal barracks bombing okay that was very early on in my career. I can't quite remember when that was now, but very early on in my career deal the deal bombing lastly toward the uh, i suppose toward the end of my operational career I worked on the uh, it's called the road rage Incident road rage road rage case at the time. It's the, the the offender, sir. Um, Prison was the guy called Kenneth Noy, a Person I'm sure uh, listeners will will know. Kenneth Noy was the uh, uh, the murderer. He, he murdered Stephen Cameron, uh, a, a young lad, and stabbed him in, near to Swanley on the uh, M2 roundabout near Swanley. But by of course by that time you'd you'd have had lots and lots of experience. You know, that that first one, the uh, that first case was very. Very difficult because you know you were you were wondering you know am I going to you know am I going to screw this up? But in, in fairness, you know we had lots of support. You know we lots of people who actually came to to sort of help us to uh, do the right thing. I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's. I just can't imagine. Obviously, I've never worked in forensics, so it makes sense that I could never imagine doing it. I just think that when you're dealing with things like murder, even if you're in a role that isn't directly involved as far as the police are concerned. If you can contribute to that case, it must be quite fulfilling. I imagine it's quite rewarding.
1: It is. I, I would often feel that, you know, God forbid, you know, I can't do anything for the poor deceased. You know, what's happened has happened. But I can do my damned best to actually make sure that the, the perpetrator is, um, who is brought to justice. And you know the, the word used nowadays, of course, is closure to victims. I'm not quite sure what, what closure to victims means, but uh, whether that helps at all, I, I don't know. But essentially, just to, to do your best and really not let the side down.
0: Has there been a situation where you felt I'm not actually able to assist you in not as much as you wouldn't be able to do what they requested, but it hasn't come to anything that's led to a development in the case?
1: Often, um, very often is that that's the case because, of course, you know you. Where those people who actually watch CSI, you know, I often say to, to my students at Kent, you know, we the, the storyline follows very, but smoothly, doesn't it? You know, you can actually follow the the, the story. Well, with, with major crimes, and in fact, to some extent, with minor crimes, the you more know, volume crimes, it's not that sort of linear process. Things sort of move, you know, things change. What, what was the hot topic one day, the hot clue one day, is not the the hot clue the following day. So you you know when you're dealing with these cases, you never really, really know what's around the corner. Uh, again, one classic case. I mean, can, can I tell you about it now, or would you like me to to it later on?
0: Crack on. I'm happy to hear. Okay, it. well,
1: uh, it was. this is going back toward the, the end of my, my operational career. Prior to me joining the, uh, the Forensic Science Service, uh, like I said, I, I'd restudied, retrained, and got a job, ultimately, with the Forensic Science Service in, uh, in London. Uh, so, just prior to that, on the 20, uh, 20th of November 1996, it was, I'm just looking at old copies of my, my diary here. I was asked to, to uh, by that time I'd been promoted, I was asked by one of the people who worked with me, I always say with rather than for, but she, we, she worked with me. And she said, Bob, it was about 10 o'clock at night, she said, Bob, can you come to this particular address? She said, because no one is reading this correctly. It was uh, an old guy, an elderly man who'd been found dead. Found with a dressing gown cord tied around his neck, and it wasn't being taken as seriously as she thought it should have been. And she was absolutely right because, of course, the the officers who'd attended and I again this figure was was still burning to my mind. um, There were 16 officers who actually had a a little trip through that scene to see what was happening. 16. Wow, um, I suppose nowadays you'd have trouble to actually get 16 police officers together. Uh, but there were sixteen who actually tripped through that scene, which again caused problems further down the track. But the, the scene was that it was an elderly man, a, a lovely guy, father, grandfather, um, who was found dead in his in his house, and he'd uh, he got a dressing gown cord tied around his, his neck. Um, just by the front door, um, there were drops of blood, vertical drops of blood, like a nosebleed type drop of blood, and his glasses were, were knocked off. Like I said, you really never know what's going to be around the corner. So, eventually, as part of the, the initial actions, we did that night. We made a photographic record of the scene. We took some some video of the uh, the entire house at the time. And then the idea was to actually leave the poor deceased in situ. He'd been, of course, certified dead, but we were going to re- regroup the following morning and uh, gather additional specialists around it, you know, people like blood pattern analysts, that type of thing. So. As I was taking the um, uh, the photographs, I, I noticed a cigarette end. This guy, I should say at this point, uh, was an avid gun collector. Uh, he collected guns, and I was actually murdered for his collection of weapons. But up in the attic, the, the sort of garret room of this very big Victorian house, was his uh, ammunition box, where he actually kept all of his black powder. He, he reloaded his, uh, his cartridges. So at the side of this, the, the, the of course, the lock was off, um, and uh, there was this black powder inside. A number of weapons have been stolen from the, the room downstairs. So the, the motive, of course, obviously was, was robbery. Uh, and then seeing this this cigarette end at the side of this this ammunition box, and uh, thinking, well, no one would smoke around you know, live yeah. powder. Uh, Nevertheless, you know this guy also I mean, even more this this guy had a, a distinguished military career, uh, so he you know, would have never smoked around that so very often very quickly that was the the burning clue but remember that this is now 1996 the DNA database had gone live only the year before yeah 1995 so we're really at the the early end of forensic science but very early end of probably dna profiling so very quickly we sent off the cigarette end to the laboratory it came back as a really a full profile so we actually got a full DNA profile from that cigarette end, but sadly, no match. No match, of course, at that stage, because the offender, the suspect, should we call him at this stage, was not actually on the database. Now, moving, you know, cutting a very, very long story short, um, eventually this guy is arrested. And two weeks previous, it turned out that he'd actually gone to this person's address, the the old person's address, and he'd passed himself off as a solicitor. Um, and so we, we sort of thought, well, actually, we, when we actually went, went to the, the offender's uh, address, um, what would he actually wear if he pa- was trying to pass himself off as a solicitor? We seized a uh, like a Crombie overcoat, uh, which bore no obvious signs of blood, showed no obvious signs of blood. But when we looked at it in a little small makeshift, I suppose, of the laboratory in those days, we got a reaction to the possible presence of some blood. We sent that off, and actually, that was the final piece of the jigsaw. We got the DNA match by that time on the the cigarette end, because, of course, once he was arrested, you get the match on the cigarette end. But he was able to say, Well, you know, yes, I was there, but I actually didn't kill him. Uh, You know, I went with another guy who actually killed him. And uh, so he was putting all sorts of red herrings in. But that final piece, that final piece of the jigsaw, was the finding of a, a minute spot of airborne blood on the cuff of that guy's arm. From the overcoat, which we couldn't see at the time, which actually was the, like I said, that, that final piece of the jigsaw, uh, and he was arrested. Of course, he was convicted uh, and went to prison for for life. It's
0: amazing to me how something as small as that, that you couldn't really see with the naked eye, can lead to a conviction. It's either, I forget the saying, but it's "every contact leads us trace" kind it of is, thing. Yes, I, it. I forget who said that.
1: Look up.
0: Okay. Did you notice a big change from mid-90s, 95, when the database came into play, in the number of arrests coming through on the back of that?
1: Absolutely revolutionary. Truly, it was. Certainly in terms of forensic science. Well, In fact, there was a development prior to DNA, the database going live in 95. Around about 87, 88, we had the first automation, the, aut- the first automation of finger marks. So fingerprints used to be a rather a, a, you know, a manual process where the, the examiner would compare the, the crime scene mark against the, uh, the offenders or the suspect marks finger, fingerprints
0: just by eye. Yeah, by eye, and
1: literally, we I think let's say about nineteen, let's say eighty-eight, eighty-nine. I'm guessing we were one of the first people in Kent to actually go live right with this new technology, and once again, you know that revolutionised um, you know, fingerprint comparisons. Uh, fingerprint, you know, the, the ability to actually compare marks quickly, uh, and the ability to get actually more, far, more and more identifications down. So we, we'd gone from literally producing a handful of, of good identifications per year, I'm talking about my time now as in crime scene work, to actually you know every almost every other day, um, identifications coming through. So it revolutionised that part of the process. And then of course back in you go then to. 95 when the database goes live and once again you know, that that revolution in terms of previously we were very limited in terms of what we could do with blood and other body fluids you know you had the traditional blood grouping uh, you know the serology tests that were around at the time which of course were good for exclusion so you can exclude parts of the population that that aren't group a blood but of course it's no good for inclusion uh, and here we are now in, in uh, 895 being able to predict something with the chance of a random match being, being one in a billion.
0: What about the technological advances? Because from mid-90s to the turn of the millennium, the, the advances in technology must have been astronomical.
1: Absolutely. I mean, what we've seen all, over the years, of course, is increased um, increased sensitivity. I, I remember going back to my, my time on the, on the tools now, pre-95, just after we heard about the Colin Pitchfork case. Um, yeah that that sort of first case, which I can't quite recall now when when that was. But we'd heard about this developing technology, this developing science. I'd attended the scene of a a very serious uh, sexual offence or a rape of a a young girl who'd been essentially, she'd been strangled to the point of where she'd gone unconscious. The the offender thought he'd he'd left her for dead. He'd he'd headed off across the field. Anyway, the the, the clue was we we found the the condom that this person had used. So, of course, that was going to be the, the big Breakthrough, you know, 395 that was going to be the break, and it, and it wasn't. And the reason for that is because in those days you actually needed DNA far more sizable uh, than we've actually got nowadays, so you needed uh, much, much more DNA uh, than we have now. But fast forwarding to where we are now, the limited detection for DNA as we stand is around about 500 picograms. So that means that everything that really touches your skin, any spectacles, any watch straps. Um, nose pieces on spectacles, that type of thing. Literally anything that touches your skin has a potential to yield a DNA profile. It's
0: crazy. I was just having a look there. It looks like Colin Pitchfork was 1988 when he first got imprisoned. He okay. actually got, re- he got released for a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago. Did you hear about that? And then he got recalled. What do you think about that?
1: Well, he, he got recalled, I think, for breaching the... Um, Terms of his license, I think, and he breached yeah. at a school or something like that. There was a something cycle, like that. I didn't follow the story, but he would certainly breached the uh, terms of his license, and, and actually went back and um, again, sort of fast-forwarding through my career. One of the things that I was fortunate to be involved with was the uh, the operation advance work which I, I led, which I think led on to me getting the the OBE, uh, and that was back in two thousand and three when we launched that. And, and what that was was a way of actually looking back at some of the early the earliest samples that have been taken with DNA so from um, from the the advent of DNA 96 um, to 2003 had we missed anything you know were there any samples here that that could be reworked and loaded to the database
0: the story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story yeah I did spot that in in One of the pages with the sort of biography on there, the Operation Advance, the national program of cold case reviews, which is obviously a really, really good thing. We're seeing a lot of people being sent to prison now that are of an older generation. And it's because of these sorts of reviews, isn't it? I seem to see on the news every other day, there's someone perhaps in the seventies that's committed a historical crime, not necessarily murder, but sex crimes as well. And it's because of advances such as this, that they're now getting sent to prison because of what they've done.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we found a, a few things, really. One was that, that these people who commit violent sexual offences, they don't often desist. You know, just think of people like Jimmy Savile. You know, they, they carry on right into to late adulthood, so that they continue to to offend. And you, you're absolutely correct, absolutely correct there when you say you know about. You know, I suppose it's. I remember parts of the Operation Advance work. We got chance, the, the honour, I suppose, of speaking to lots and lots of female victims who thought their cases had been been long since forgotten about, and some of them would, would, would tell you that, her, you know, she said, well, I'm actually glad that, you know, that the, the fear now is being turned back onto the offenders. She said, you know, because for, for 20 years, you know, I've carried out this on you know, in, inwardly to think, actually, you know, is this the guy who is, I'm sitting next to on the bus? So, you know, the, even though it's, it's 20 odd years on, it still has, it resonates with that sort of, the victims. And of course, the thing that we, we almost never need to do forget is that these people often continue to commit further offences so you know there's a, a big story to tell there in terms of actually, you know, did we miss an opportunity could we have acted sooner and therefore you know, would that person not then have re-victimised other people
0: Yeah do you know the, you might not have necessarily worked on it but the David Fuller case that was a cold case where, well say say cold it was unsolved I guess, he murdered two women in I want to say the 80s
1: it
0: was. It was. It was just, as soon as I, it was almost immediately as so I joined Kent. Um, that okay. Yeah. So sort of mid to mid to late eighties then. Yes. And then in what twenty, maybe seventeen, eighteen, he gets arrested. But then they find something that wasn't expected. They go into his house potentially to rule him out of two murders, and they find all these images of him doing things to to dead bodies. And- yeah, with corpses. Yeah. What's the strangest? Maybe. Twist, I suppose, that where there's something that's come out of the blue on something you've worked on. So maybe you're working on one thing, but it revealed something that was absolutely out of left field.
1: On the spot, there. I, I won't think, let me let me just try to think. But while I am thinking, let me, like I said to you before, you really never know what's around the corner. You know, we, we didn't expect that the cigarette end, we didn't expect the blood spot on the uh, on the, on the, on the cover of that coat. But when I'd first joined Kent. One of the first cases was was back in the 90s, I'm guessing, early 90s, and it, it was the, the murder of Alan Leppard, and Alan had been, been murdered on his doorstep in, in Moncton, and of course the Dutch was in the days where you know, we didn't have any ANPR, or automatic number plate recognition, no CCTV, no DNA database, and his murder was his murder was effectively evaded justice for, well, it's, you know, the case is still unsolved. And actually it's quite poignant actually I, I used the, the clip uh, to show my students um, because his girlfriend his partner who he lived with at the time and actually who witnessed this uh, this offense was herself uh, murdered a number of years afterwards. Uh, I remember getting the call from again one of the people who worked with me at the time saying that uh, well i'm telling you uh, not because of what it is but because of who of it is and it was about eight months after been found shot to death, shot to death on his on his doorstep. We went to a house where we found the, the victim, sorry, the, the partner of Alan. She was in the bath. We thought that to all intents and purposes, it was a suicide. There was a, a note there that would indicate uh, suicide. And really, it wasn't until we sent the samples from, the, from Brenda, uh, the victim, to the pathologist, the toxicologist, pardon me, they discovered ether in her body where would you get ether of a of that type of dose how would you actually ingest ether um and and that's still a case that's that's unsolved so essentially sort of two murders in one there that's still unsolved we'd have never thought ether
0: is ether the stuff where you could put not that i'm going to promote how to do this but you could be attacked with that on a blanket if you breathe it in yes it sends you unconscious right
1: it was an early form of, of, of anaesthetic medium. I mean, the, the only proprietary use for it at the time uh, might be different now, but it was to actually start diesel engines that wouldn't start. So, you would you actually spray this. Um, I forget what it was called now, but you, you could buy a can of this, this spray and spray it actually into the, uh, into the manifold. But mm. yeah, that, that really came out right, you know, left field. A, a few cases, you know, where and another one where the latterly, I suppose, before I actually left to join the forensic science service. Again, a guy who we said, to the, the forensic examiners, uh, we thought that this guy had been, been murdered. He had a polythene bag pulled over his head. The pathologist came and looked at the, uh, the bindings on the wrist. The, the, this guy's wrists were tied behind his back. They formed the opinion that this guy had murdered himself, killed himself, and that this just that this just didn't look right at all. You know, there, there was, a, when you actually looked around the house, there were no, uh, there was no bank book, there was no checkbook no check cards, there's no uh, debit card. So we, I suppose, we stuck to our guns, although the senior investigator at the Times uh, said that actually, you know, this is a, you know, if the pathologist says that this guy could have tied these ligatures himself, and this could have just been a, you know, I suppose, a, a sex game gone wrong, then, you know, we're, we're happy to go with that. Anyway, it, it turned out three or four days later, he, his bank cards start to get used three or four days later after his death.
0: So we were right wow is that intuition do you think do you get a lot of intuition working cases like those
1: I think I think you do I think you get to a point where you know initially going back to my time now I in mean, 86 you know you were, you were taught to, to pick this up pick that up do as you're told do things very methodically and then actually as you develop your, your own skills you do start to get you know that sort of sixth sense but of course by that time 86 to the uh, best part of 13 years uh, you would be examining probably upwards of a 1,000 th- cases per year. Wow. Not, not, all, not all serious crimes, of course, but, uh, but within that, you, there will be three or four you know, really who-do, you know, tricky murders
0: uh, to, to So in the Forensic Science Service then, we briefly chatted about it before we started recording, but Ray Feisch, one of my previous guests who you're aware <laughs> of, what was your interaction uh, with Ray? How did you know, obviously worked for the same government company, but... Uh...
1: Ray was um, a very able, when I first met Ray, he was, uh, and is a very able, very competent and qualified toxicologist in his own right. But the Forensic Science Service, round about the time really of, go back probably to the Chillenden murders, which I can't quite recall when they were now, but the Forensic Science Service had, with the support of the Association of Chief Police Officers, had put together this idea that we should have a specialist advisor. We should have someone from the laboratory who can advise actually on Specialized laboratory techniques that can be done in the laboratory and uh, not necessarily out at the scene. So Ray became a specialist advisor. He became our specialist advisor. So Ray and I would work together, um, me, of course, representing the prosecution aspects, the, you know, the policing aspects at the time, and Ray doing the, you know, liaising with the laboratory, liaising with scientists in the, in the lab about what could and couldn't be done. But very, very, uh, a, a very able guy, uh, and actually the guy who. Uh, I suppose, got me interested in, um, in actually taking a job in the Forensic Science Service. Like I say, that by that time, I'd, um, I suppose, caught the study bug, uh, born again academic. So I, I was studying quite heavily. We'd run a number of projects in conjunction with the Forensic Science Service and, and others. And he rang me one day um, and said, uh, Oh, we yeah, have just been to a meeting today. He said, We were talking about you. Um, you know, you fancy. Uh, if you see a job advertised, you fancy see you're having a applying for it. So I did, and that's how I actually got my foot in the door of the Forensic Science Service.
0: What were your thoughts when it dissolved in 2012? Ray certainly wasn't happy about it.
1: It was an absolute travesty. It was a travesty for, for no good reason at all, and it will serve no one uh, any good. Um, it's dreadful. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that the, the private sector suppliers have not stepped up to the mark. They have, you know, I think we have a forensic science profession that's the, the envy of the world still. But um, you know, to actually pull that the rug on on that flagship uh, um, organisation, I remember being invited when I went to the Home Office, being invited one year to to David Blunkett's Christmas party, uh, and knowing his private secretary quite well, of course, having had a drink by that time, he said, "Oh, he said, um, you know, come and tell David what you know what, what we think about forensic science and." Uh, Across to to see him, uh, I said, Well, you know, you do realize, Home Secretary, by that time, Home Secretary, that uh, the, the forensic science in the UK, we're the NASA of forensic science. I mean, I don't know what we are now, but we're certainly not the NASA of forensic science. But it, it was dreadful. It was the thought of, I mean, if you have to look at trying to run <laughs> criminal justice on, on a profit basis and trying to sort of say such nonsensical things as, you know, the forensic science service was losing you know, a million pounds. Of, A million pounds a week or a month, or something like that. How much of the other parts of the criminal justice process lose similar amounts and and more money? Forensic science is very, very cost effective.
0: Yeah, it baffles me that it happened. And, you know, for all the reasons you've just said there, Ray, as well. So once that ends, then what's your transition like into working at the university? Was that something that you were doing before, or did you have it in, in your head you wanted to do that at some point?
1: Well, I, no, I'd actually started. Well, actually, when I worked for the, the Forensic Science Service, I was very, very proud to, to work for the FSS. Then was approached by the University of Kent, where, where I am now, approached by them to help to set up their, their forensic science degree programme. Would I come along and, and chat to them? Uh, so I, I did. But, of course, just a fractional appointment. So I used to teach just one, I think, six weeks per, per year, I think it was, uh, just one semester's worth of uh, one, one module in one semester. And the idea behind, in the back of my mind, was always to, when I sort of stop working in the home office or forensic science service, to actually come more back to sort of full time academic life. And that's how it how it happened. I started part time, then I left the home office back in 2010, and then I came here sort of full time and thoroughly enjoy you know, the interaction with the students. Love the you, know, you know working with the, new students, working with them too. To inspire them, I suppose to to you know, with, with the, the use of forensic science, to inspire people to actually study science more uh, more broadly.
0: Can you give me a high level overview of what students can be expected to learn upon completion of your course?
1: What they can be expected to learn, or what can, can they, what jobs are they? What going
0: well, to? let's say not necessarily what jobs they would go into, but let's say what what is your goal that your students come out of your course. Step one, for example, the end of year one, you'll know X, Y, and Z, end of year two, et cetera. Well,
1: ultimately, I mean, I'll, I'll compress everything together, but ultimately it's a science degree. It's a degree at Kent that has a good core of physical science in the middle. So they know that they've taken a STEM subject: science, technology, engineering, and maths. They are STEM graduates. So all the things that are open to STEM graduates are open to our students as well. So we, we try to use, we, we don't try, but we, we do use the um, context of forensic science to teach science. Things like transferable skills in terms of mathematics. I remember one student at an open day telling me how she'd struggled to understand Suvac equations uh, when she was taught it at school. Now she's actually taught it within the concept, context of ballistics. She actually gets it. You know, some mathematics that... that taught within the context of forensic science so we use forensic science uh to to, to actually inspire that through that level of learning but the key word there is transferable skills because not all of them will want to go into forensic science not all of them will will go into forensic science so we need to to prepare these students for for wider roles roles in intelligence roles in policing roles in teaching
0: i think there's a good chance that if all kids were taught Equations like that involving ballistics in school—they might pay a little bit more attention. I would have thought.
1: Sure, I think if you can teach, you know, simple trigonometry, but use it in the context of blood pattern analysis. You know, it's a, it's a platform to teach once again transferable skills.
0: It is important to relate it to something that you enjoy as well, which is crucial.
1: Sure, and, and I mean, my my view is, I take the view that particularly at Kent, you we know, we have a fabulous graduation ceremony. But for me, that's not the, that's the, the end prize for me is actually getting those students into a job. It's actually what job am I preparing these students for and, and starting that process very early on. Because, of course, not, not all of them want to work in forensic science. We have lots of good students who go on to work in intelligence and policing. But those who do go into forensic science, how can we prepare them best to do that? And then by, by actually looking at the, you know, that, that, the end prize being the, the job, you can actually then start to sort of take, back, take a step back and reflect, well, actually, you know, am I doing my very best to prepare these students? And so looking at that, you know, that that next step on really gets you to to reflect are you doing the best by these, these students? And, and, I, and I'm, I'm convinced that we are.
0: I've been looking as well, it, more recently it looks like you're sort of a bit of a world traveller and a public speaker, as it were. You're getting all over the shop, Abu Dhabi, India, Egypt and stuff, what, What's where's all this come from?
1: Well, I mean, I'll t- sort of pick them off bit, bit by bit. Um, the, the Egypt work was, um, you know, I suppose as your career grows, you get to become more known. And I was asked by the European Commission if I would sort of help to lead a uh, piece of work with the, the Egyptian Forensic Medical Authority uh, in Cairo, in, both, both in Cairo and uh, around Egypt. And it was on the back of the the uprisings were just uh, starting to die down a little bit. So we, we went to, to Cairo, and Alexandria, and all sorts of places. And um, it was about you know how can we prepare these these countries better for essentially things like mass disasters. Our time in Egypt was at a period, of course, when you know pathology services were just almost collapsing uh, you know, because we would got to a uh, you know far too many sadly far too many victims that could be covered with. Uh, so that, that was that was the, the backdrop of Egypt. Um, I went out there for, a, I guess for about six occasions now over a period of two years. I did some work with the European Union in Turkey, essentially getting them to be able to quantify the the value that they're adding with forensic science. It's all very well saying that forensic science is cool and it's very exciting and it's very good value. you have heard me say before. You know, it's it's cheap. Uh, you know, it's good, very effective and very efficient actually actually, you know, how can we put some, some numbers on that? How can we actually show what the value is? And once um, we at the Home Office, we built some, uh, some models that actually showed the, the benefits of forensic science. Um, you know, If you put so much into the, the front end of forensic science, let's think of a DNA database. If you know, we know the matching efficiency of a database, we know how many samples we put in, we know what we should get out in terms of, uh, of identifications and, of course, then arrests and so forth. So it was pieces of work like like that. More latterly, um, I've spoken on disaster victim identification in in Abu Dhabi, and effectively that was a reflection on you know, my time in, in Sheffield um, from you know, those very early days, that the Hillsborough disaster, going all the way through to uh, you know to, to the, the Manchester disaster to uh, the Herald of Free Enterprise sinking, which I was was in Kent when I when I was there, and. Um, Happened in Kemp, pardon me, when when I was there. Um, then moving all the way forward to Grenfell Tower, and saying, you know, actually, guys, there's some recurring themes here. You know, we, we don't, despite the fact that we're making massive advances in forensic science, we don't seem to be getting much better in, in organising these types of events, these uh, cases. So that was very much the the theme there, and and more recently in um, in India, getting involved with India, really, to I think to help them to help prevent them falling into some of the pitfalls that we fell into. We didn't get everything right to start with. We made some boo-boos along the way. So actually, you know, if, we can, if we can help them to get over that, then that's, that's good for me.
0: We've just started 2023. What's your plans for this year? Do you have anything coming up talk-wise? Are you hosting any panels? What's, what's the outlook for this year?
1: I'm going out um, to India to speak on a, uh, a women's rights conference, and once again showing what can be done from experiences with, with Operation Advance. So, from just looking at samples that we've already got in the uh, in police possession, looking at uh, you know how we can fully exploit forensic science nowadays. You know things like mobile phone technology. How can we throw the, the very best at, at this to actually make life better for for these victims of, of sexual offences and the like. I'm leading a, a workshop in, uh, in Italy on, uh, on mixture inter- DNA mixture interpretation in April. Uh, and I think that's all the plans for uh, for this year, unless uh, some of your listeners want to post me some great uh, some tickets.
0: <laughs> you're going to fill up your passport, never mind anything else. It's good, though. I, I mean, you're very busy, very busy. But looking at your career, I was uh, blown away, really, about everything that you've done. I was going to ask you just on a more general wavelength or way of thinking, just what a standard day in the life would be for Bob Green, whether it's a day at uni or a day on such a course, what's a generic run of the mill day in the life like for yourself
1: well it, it it's funny you should say that because recently um and I suppose as I get older, I have to write things down <laughs> so and I have this list of I bought myself one of these these to do books, yeah and, yeah and what did I do. I did some marking. Um, I, this is we're back a day, one, just a day or two. I marked a thesis. I helped our society. We have a, a very proactive forensic science society at the University of Kent and I'm keen to, to help nourish. I've been doing some work on diversity mark, trying to open up the curriculum to more diverse thinking and more inclusive thinking. So I did some, uh, some uh, work on my DNA lectures. And that was um, oh sorry yes and I, I then marked some some exams. I taught that day and followed up with a number of students. And you probably can tell by the, the number of pins we've been getting all the way through this uh, <laughs> this uh, talk, just how many emails we actually get during the day, which of course need responding to. Um, of course, yeah, responding to it in, in a quick time.
0: So apart from all the academic stuff that you're doing, the travelling, do you get much chance to just? Unwind, and you know, what do you like to do in your spare time?
1: I like my my family. The, the older I've got, I I treasure my my family um, more than anything. Uh, I suppose having had this period now of uh, you know, of chasing sort of accolades and chasing postnominals and so forth. I often say nowadays that you know the, the proudest title I'm uh, the title I'm most proud of is dad. You know, so so that it's almost sort of coming back to full circle, really. So I, I get a lot of enjoyment from. Uh, my family, my, my grandchildren. But apart from this, you know, they tend to take up most of the time.
0: Oh, that's nice. Oh, I like that. Is there anything you would go back and change if, if you had the chance, or perhaps some advice you would give your younger self?
1: Uh, I think I'd start to try. I think I'd, I'd try to get the penny to drop sooner rather than it did for me. in mind you, know, I had a. I um, think I came to Kent with I think a HNC back in 1986. So I had some qualifications, but I think for me, if I could have stolen that time back um, when I sort of thought you know, all, of this, was, all of this learning was nonsense, I think I'd try to instill in students to actually learn sooner rather than later, because you, you, you'll have to do it later rather than sooner.
0: Isn't it ironic how when we're kids, the last thing we want to do is learn, but then when we're Adults heading towards even older, that's all we want to do, but it's the time's already passed, kind of, for most people.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm
0: determined to,
1: to do, I mean, I'm coming now to, to the end of my uh, my time in, in work, but uh, hopefully, you know, I'll have done some good along the way. Um, Operation Advance identified um, several hundreds criminals, several hundred criminals who actually thought they'd got away with, with murder, thought they got away with, not, not with murder but with uh, rape very serious offences, they thought you know, that these cases were never going to be solved. Uh, so that was a real highlight for me. But the real highlight nowadays, of course, is working with the students, actually seeing when you know the pennies dropped, telling them very candidly, actually, you know, what, what happened to me, you're know, playing your life, saying to them, don't fall into the same mistakes that I made.
0: I know you've written a few papers, but has there been any consideration to write a book about your career?
1: I've thought about it, actually, yes, but I've really never... Thought they're really taking that, that next step. I mean, I've got a, a, literally a, a million and one stories in the uh, in your head, written down in places.
0: I think it would be interesting. I bet some publishers would be interested. Should speak to rare. I'm a little bit humble,
1: um, so you sort of part of you sort of think, well, you know, would anybody be interested in this? They would. And Trust then of course me, they would. You know, I, you know, I, I give you my synopsis of a typical day in the life of an academic. <laughs> and I just think, that, you know, where where would I actually get the time to actually sit down and, yeah. and actually write this?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: so, but I've I thought about. I've done some some TV work this year, and some a, a few sort of documentary series with uh, Sky Crime uh, and the BBC. So, I think these stories are. It, it's helpful, I think, as we all get older, for these stories, these experiences, not to be lost, because we actually learn from these experiences, and that's exactly the type of thing I'm trying to do with India. To actually learn from our experiences, some good, some not so good.
0: I think when you do retire, whenever that time may be, you could sit. You could get someone to ghostwrite your book. You just tell them a story, like you are with myself. They ask you questions. You tell them some stories. They write it all for you.
1: I've never been able to to connect with that type of person. Who, who I, I do know people who have actually done that, and yes, I've got a, a million and one stories to tell. Both you know in this country and you know, and, and from my experiences in, in places like Egypt in Ethiopia, where you see things that people will go through a whole lifetime of experience and actually never, never experience.
0: Well, fair enough, yeah. If it's not for you, it's not for you.
1: Who knows? For any listeners there who, uh, who want to uh, get in contact, I'll, I'm be happy.
0: <laughs> never say never. But yeah, it's been a pleasure coming on. I'm glad you reached out to me, Bob. It's been nice speaking to you, and I really appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you.